Well, first of all, we need to define fluency. We need to be all on the same page of what fluency means. So in my presentations, I ask people, what words come to mind when you think about being fluent with your math facts? And overwhelmingly, people put words like speed, speed, fast, right? Automaticity, all words about speed. And then occasionally I'll get accuracy, right? Because kids can give the right answer, but then be wrong, <laughs> right? So we want to have the accuracy as well as it being, I call it relatively speedy because it's the least of the four things I want to talk about. But there Today are we speak with Anne Elise Record. Anne Elise is a seasoned educator with a career spanning over two decades of elementary classroom experience. These days, she's a K-5 to math coach who works with districts on developing strategies to increase students' fact fluency as well as how to use manipulatives in the classroom. Stick around as we'll discuss effective strategies to help students build their fact fluency. How to help students with the progression from additive thinking to multiplicative thinking. And how can we help students with concepts that hold them back from their learning? Let's do this, Kyle. Whoop. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce from tapintoteenminds.com. And I'm John Orr from mrorrisageek.com. We are two math teachers who, together, with you, the community of math moment makers worldwide who want to build and deliver math lessons that spark curiosity, fuel sense-making, and ignite your teacher action. Are you ready, John, to dive into this awesome conversation with a dear, dear math friend? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of course, Kyle. We are honored to bring Annie Lee's record on to this show as we've been looking forward to this conversation. All right. But before we dive in here, John, uh, we want to make sure that you folks at home have taken the time to explore some of our most recent full units of mm. problem-based math lessons. Right, right. We've been busy adding full units to our Make Math Moments website. In the last episode here, we shared some details about our six-day unit called the Woolly Worm Race that was created to help educators address teaching fractions, decimals, and percentages conceptually. Well, we've also tossed in some more context-rich, problem-based math lesson fun with our unit called Snack Time, where students explore the tapintoteenminds.com classic three-act math task called Cheese and Crackers to use partitive division to partition and distribute slices of cheese to a specified number of crackers. That's definitely a classic I've used with my class. And now I'm set up with a whole unit of connected math talks, sense-making prompts, purposeful practice, and summative assessments, all straight from my web browser by visiting our task page at makemathmoments.com forward slash tasks. Yes, it's super exciting, John. We hope to see you over at makemathmoments.com forward slash tasks so that you can run one of these awesome problem-based units in your classroom today. All right, enough from us. Let's get on with our great, 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 great conversation with Annie Lease. Hey there, Annie Lease. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. As always, we are super excited to chat with someone we've met, someone we know. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Doing fabulous. Awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. Well, we know you quite well, but maybe there's a few math moment makers out there who aren't as familiar with Annalise Record. 
can you help us out? Let's learn a little more about yourself. What's your role in education? And how did you get to that part in your learning journey? Sure. Currently, I'm a consultant. So currently, I uh, work for myself out of my home. And I was traveling around a lot and working in schools and districts and also presenting around the country for the Bureau of Education and Research. But then once we had the shutdown, I've been working from home. <laughs> but I had gone to get to my undergraduate degree was in sociology. So I was not certified or able to teach. And so I got back to school. Once our kids were coming of school age, I went back to school and got my master's in order to teach. And then I taught grade five for 13 years. And then a math coach position opened up in my district. And so I became the math coach K-5. And that was really the start of my journey to truly understand the trajectories of the learning and progressions of kids from the early numeracy on up and all those connections. But also at that time, I taught some pre-service college classes, the math methods, I help people tutor them to help pass the praxis test because I've experienced in this role working with so many different populations of people and I've seen the anxiety and the stress and the phobias like firsthand of people. And I didn't have that growing up. When I grew up, I could answer things quickly and accurately. So I felt good about myself. But to have seen the phobia up close from a variety of people, you know, it was surprising to me how many of the college kids were terrified of math going into teach elementary and it just became a passion of mine. The more that I learned, the more I wanted to share with people. And my husband got a new job two hours south of where we had been living. And then I'm like, well, what am I going to do now? There weren't any math coaching positions. I loved working with the teachers and the kids and everyone. And that's when uh, my two close friends and mentors, Dr. Nikki Newton and Christina Tondevold said, well, why don't you go off on your own? And that's what I did. So my life has been completely different these last two years doing this new part of my life. Yeah. And I think you've brought up a huge point about math anxiety being a huge thing. And I think still is for so many people. And I'm wondering, like, what suggestions can you give our listeners right now and teachers that can help reduce that anxiety? Like if you've been recognizing it's a problem in your past and your career now, I'm wondering, I guess, two things. One is like, what can we do now to help kids and even teachers reduce some of that math anxiety. But then I'm also wondering about like, what did Annalise look like as an early teacher? Like, did you recognize that right from the get go that we've got this math anxiety? And it's something that you've been using in your career right from the start? Or is that a progression that kind of built up over time? And so those are, I guess, two things to talk about. <laughs> yes. Okay. So first of all, when I think back to when I first began teaching, so I think we all know what we know at the time and we don't know what we don't know. And so in my master's program to teach, the only class that I had to take um, that involved math to become certified K-8 was math and literature. So it was a literacy-based math class. So I came out certified K-8 really being no more qualified to understand early numeracy than I was to teach in eighth grade math class. I think the assumption was that you'll be given a textbook of whatever district hires you and you follow the textbook. So that's what I did. You know, I became the grade five teacher. We had a textbook. I was very procedural in my teaching. It's all that I knew. When I grew up learning math, it was a very procedural, rote procedure. There was no open tasks. There was no talking about our thinking or having any kind of flexibility of thought. And so I gave time tests to my classroom all 13 years I was in the classroom. And over the course of that time, I know I did concrete and pictorial things, but it was leading toward the algorithm. Like I didn't do flexibility with number sense. I was trying to show them why the algorithms worked. I didn't know anything else. So it definitely was not in play 
the first many years that I was teaching. But as I learned more, we had a consultant come to our district that showed me how to teach math in a visual way. That was totally new to me. I had no idea that you could teach math visually, like pattern blocks for fractions. It was like a mind-blowing thing to me. I had never seen it before. So it's been certainly, I call it a journey because I think we're all on journeys. We as educators, as well as the kiddos, right? And so we got to find out where we are on that journey. And then you continue. And when you know, Dr. Maya Angelou says, when you know more, you do better. And that's exactly what I believe. And I've been living that I know the more that I learn, the more I realize I have to learn. This is a never ending process. And so I think we need, I need to send the message to people. I want to let people know that there is so much more to mathematics and connections and a beautiful journey to it so far beyond rote memorization and procedures. I think that when we think about giving kids worksheets that are just 20 kill and drill things, like that's not going to be encouraging a love of math, nor will it build the flexibility of thought that we need to build our number sense and to develop the confidence to try harder problems. The idea of the growth mindset messages of Joe Bowler from Stanford, you know, of the fact that our brains have the way of growing new parts. There is no such thing as a math brain. But I think what happens is people have gone on their journey, and I truly believe time tests have begun. Well, I mean, research is out there that proves it, but that it's the start of math anxiety. Kids think that because they're not fast at the math, then they're not good at math. And it begins disassociating themselves from the idea that they can be a mathematician. And then it gets harder over the course of the years if we're only doing procedures and formulas. That's the only way they've been exposed to thinking and algorithms. Algorithms take lots of steps. And I think of like a three-digit by two-digit multiplication problem. That's a lot of calculational work. But until we explore these things in more flexible ways, it can make it much easier. And I find in my consulting work, the more that I share these ideas and they're seeing the math in a different way, even the parents, I have my districts do math nights because I want to talk to the parents. It's huge. We get the parents involved. And by the end of that 30 minutes, the parents are like, oh my gosh, this is a whole new world to me. That's why my child was doing that this morning. I mean, literally they said to me, we were arguing with my child this morning about eight plus six. We just told her it's 14. She's like, but no, mom, that's not the way I was supposed to do it. And the parents were like, but now we know why. And we totally get it. We've seen the future impact of that work. And so the whole anxiety piece comes from not the math, but the feeling of insecurity and embarrassment and humiliation people have felt growing up, that they were not a math person, as if it takes some extra kind of brain to be good at math. And it's not true. We all can grow those parts of our brains in a fun and engaging ways. So I want our students to have no bad stories of math growing up. In all my consulting, I would say probably 80% of the people that I meet tell me the most awful, traumatic math journeys of their lives. It's just always negative. They're always about 20%. Like, oh, it was good. It was fun. I loved it. It's like, well, you're like me then because I got my answers correct. I was able to get them done fast. So I thought I was good. But it wasn't until I really began this deep journey that I realized I didn't have any understanding of mathematics. So I didn't see connections to topics within the math. But now the more that I learn, the more I'm like, oh my gosh, that connects to that. And throughout the grade levels, even, it's a beautiful thing to finally see those connections. Hey there, Math Moment Makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like, I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple of months, maybe even a couple of years? 
Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, Do us this huge solid. Uh, We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. Yeah. Well, and we love asking about these things because I worry that when teachers and educators who are at that place in their own journey where they feel like maybe they don't feel comfortable with the content or they maybe remember their own math anxiety that they had as a student, or they just think, you know, playing out that they're doing it wrong. And they see someone like yourself, Annalise, or John and I, and we are so into thinking about how mathematics develops and thinking about the conceptual connections, like all of those pieces. But yet, most of us, most of us didn't have that same experience growing up. And many of us, as you just mentioned, and it's great to hear that many of us actually taught it the way we were taught. And it's okay if that's where someone is as they're listening. So I think that is such a huge message for people to see that it takes time. And I immediately connected when you were describing how you were teaching very procedurally and you were trying to help kids to understand why the procedure works, which I think is kind of part of that trajectory. If you learned procedurally, you tend to teach procedurally. And then hopefully over time, you start to see that, oh, connections are important. But then what we do, it seems like for me anyway, I started to still teach the procedures, but then I tried to explain them afterwards. Instead, now we're kind of realizing, oh, we really need to start with kids making meaning and making sense first and then working towards and allowing those student-generated algorithms to start popping out and helping them to make their connections so that we can essentially get more efficient along the way, but not with the end goal just being an algorithm or a procedure, right? Absolutely, 100%. And in fact, the more learning that I'm doing, I've been trying to work on my own knowledge of middle school mathematics in terms of the conceptual understanding. I can get right answers. I help people pass the praxis test. That's not the issue of getting right answers. It's I want to get the connections that I missed first time around. And so I've been doing a lot of work on that. And the more of the work that I'm doing, I am doing like mental math or ratio tables and things of using chunks of numbers that are nothing to do with the algorithm. And I'm getting easy answers really quickly. Like because I'm breaking apart numbers in ways I never had done before. And it's just a matter over time. I do a lot of Pam Harris's math strat chat every week and New York Academy. I took a class with uh, Pam Harris on proportional reasoning. That is just like, I'm learning these ways of thinking about it. When I learned it the first time, I had no idea of those connections. I was just following procedures. And it's just a beautiful extension to what I already know as the foundation of understanding K-5 and to extend that to that middle school level. I love that. And it's actually kind of ironic that nowadays you'll see like both in your messaging and so many others who come on our show and obviously John and I, who we do not believe like math fluency is not speed yet. When we actually start to help kids become more flexible in their thinking and start to play with different strategies and really just give them the freedom to think and use critical thinking in order to reason and solve through problems along a trajectory, along a progression, what I end up seeing is actually kids end up becoming more 
quick with their math facts than kids who are memorizing the procedure. It's actually kind of mind blowing when you're saying, no, no, we're like, it's not about speed, but then the end goal ends up oftentimes becoming speed anyway, which isn't the holy grail. It's just kind of like a symptom of having flexibility and fluency with number. And I'm hearing that in your voice. I hear that in your message. So before we dive deeper into fact fluency, because we have a lot of questions for you, we know your connections with Christina Tondevold as well as Nikki Newton. We know you're big into that and we'll be diving into those questions. But before we let it get out of hand here and we dive too deep, (laughs) we've got to hear about a math moment from your past. So you've described a few things about how you began teaching, how you taught for a while, also a bit about your experience learning in the classroom as a student. But is there a moment that pops out in your mind? It could be defining. Maybe it's something that like a celebratory moment, or it could be one that maybe you remember. And and it's one of those memories that you sort of wish you didn't remember. (laughs) What's a math moment that pops out in your mind that you're willing to share with our audience? First of all, I'm just so happy to be able to share you my math moment because I've been listening to your podcast forever and I walk my dog listening to it. And whenever you ask your guests, I'm like, oh, I would tell this story if I was ever interviewed by them. (laughs) When I became math coach, K5, before I began that part of my job, I took a one-week class with Dr. Mahesh Sharma on really it was K8 type content. And it was the first time I saw the connection between grade levels of things I could do at a lower grade level that affected what came up. It was like my eye opening to that kind of procedure. Well, we did the area model of multiplication and he loves Cuisinier rods. They're my favorite math manipulative. I think they're the key to helping our kids move past the counting phase of reasoning and into strategic additive thinking, multiplicative reasoning. But so we had these Cuisinier rods and we built area models of basic facts. So in the third grade content, right? Well, over the course of that week, We kept using the area model to do double digit by double digit or to do decimals by decimals or mixed numbers by like like the same area model I was able to use with harder content. Well, then he said, we got to division and we're using the area model to do division, which I had never, ever thought of before. And we were doing it concretely with the Cuisinier rods. And he put on the board X squared plus 5X plus 4. That's the exact problem he gave. And he wanted us to divide it by X plus 1. Now, I remember my brain saying, I'm out. Like I took calculus in high school and again in college. I mean, it wasn't like, I mean, I really thought I did well with math, but it had been decades since I had done that before. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm out. I'm not even going to attempt this. But then he said, try doing the same thinking we've been doing with division for the area model. Can you make a rectangle that is X plus one by something? And within 20 seconds, I had built the area model. I knew the answer was X plus four and I could explain to you why. And that was my moment that I went, oh my gosh, a model that I can show the thinking with the kids in third grade can follow them through their entire math journey and the math journey will make sense. It's not just getting a right answer. And I was sold on the whole idea of, wow, this is just a learning progression. And the more that I see that, the more that I know it's all about that journey. My um, husband has been working from home since the shutdown in March and He says, and I've done a lot of trainings online. He's like, hon, you say the word journey all of the time. I'm like, I know, but it is true. We're all on a journey, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. (laughs) And I'm glad you brought up the area model because we love using it. We love talking about it. We think Didn't we just talk about it last night, John? Yeah, yeah. I was just going to bring that up, Kyle. (laughs) Kyle and I talked about it last night, but I just had a recent discussion with a friend who couldn't see this new math and why did their son or daughter have to 
learn this diagram or this way of multiplying. And like when I can show her how to multiply and get done in 30 seconds, and he referenced that Facebook post that we've all oh seen about somebody, somebody being done in 30 seconds and then twiddling mm-hmm. their thumbs for the rest of the time and, yep, and exactly. it versus somebody who's drawing the area model. And we had this long conversation about that. And that was exactly what I referenced Annalise is that this model can carry forward, whereas this algorithm works in this one instance. And we use it in high school. And I'm, you know, listeners of this show know I'm a high school math teacher. And I just helped one of my students this morning and yesterday with completing the square using the area model. And, you know, like completing the square for a grade 10 student can be tough. And some teachers think it's one of those procedures you just got to show kids. They just got to memorize this procedure. And it's hard to explain why it works unless you use a square to model it and the area model works perfectly. And and I love how it carries forward from there. And I really like how you referenced both Kyle and you referenced that by using these models, kids can get that fluency. I was sold on the area model from high school and then downwards, whereas you went from an area model from kind of lower elementary upwards because I was sold downwards because after using the area model to help kids complete the square, in high school, they were completing the square in their heads. Like they didn't have to draw anything. They didn't have to write anything because they could actually imagine the square and what the dimensions of the square would be and so that they could write the vertex form of a parabola or quadratic expression. So it is a great tool. And I know that we'll talk about many other things. And I'm being a high school teacher and still trying to learn more about elementary math. I know Kyle's been on a, a journey for that for the last few years, but I don't get a lot of experience into the elementary math unless I do that on my own, or I talk to fantastic teachers like yourself. So I'm really hoping for this episode and the remainder of this episode to be like a masterclass in fluency and a masterclass that I can learn from and all our teachers can learn from. So if we just kind of think about diving into early mathematics in particular, and if we could help educators and parents learn effective strategies to help their children and students with fact fluency, let's think about some practical suggestions, some tips that we can help our teachers with on fact fluency at an early age. Well, first of all, we need to define fluency. We need to be all on the same page of what fluency means. So in my presentations, I ask people, what words come to mind when you think about being fluent with your math facts? And overwhelmingly, people put words like speed, speed, fast, right? Automaticity, all words about speed. And then occasionally I'll get accuracy, right? Because kids can give the right answer, but then be wrong, (laughs) right? So we want to have the accuracy as well as it being, I call it relatively speedy because it's the least of the four things I want to talk about. But there are two more pieces of fluency, which is flexibility and efficiency. Those are the four pillars of math fact fluency. And I want to honor the fact also that there may be some of our students that are not ever going to be fast, but they are using great strategies and number sense. I have to mention to you right off the bat that a lot of my consulting work has been focusing around what's called a math running record. It was a protocol designed by Dr. Nikki Newton. She did 10 years of research on math affluency and created this interview protocol for us to talk to our kids about their thinking. I believe it is the key to transform schools and districts in the mathematical journey for our kids because it's looking for that flexibility of thought. And if we explore flexibility with our different operations with the kiddos, it'll set a foundation for thinking that will then apply to the actual grade level content we're trying to teach. 
without having to go to algorithms, they'll become much more efficient problem solvers and with their fluency with the calculations because they're using strategies and number relationships, which will build their number sense. Like it's the start of everything. I found it's been my key to educate people on early numeracy because myself, having gotten honestly a master's degree certified K-8, I had no idea the world of early numeracy until I took a course from Dr. Charma, that whole beginning of that journey. But then I also took the Number Sense 101 course with Christina Tondevold. And that was like, oh my gosh, like what is this world? And then I met Dr. Nikki as well, and it filled in more information. And then I just continued to learn about the early numeracy. So I want us to think, first of all, about that there are developmental journeys our kids go through. Typically, what our kids do for a math fact journey is they begin counting on their fingers, right? Fingers are very important for the brain, very important for kids to do that. But there's also something called finger nausea, which is the discrimination of the fingers, but not finger counting. So the idea that the kids are going to start by counting, they usually count all our youngest kiddos. If you ask them three plus two. In a context, I'm putting all the fluency work in context, but you ask them three plus two, they put out three fingers and two fingers and they would count them all starting at one. Then kids develop to count on. So they may have all five fingers up, but they know this hand has three and it's four or five. That progresses to head counting on. So the three isn't even out anymore. They might finger count four or five or then in their head go four or five. Then we have a whole section of derived facts. And that's typically the phase people skip. They tend to go, okay, you're counting on. So kids are counting on their fingers when they do their teen sums, because how else do you count on eight without keeping track on your fingers? And then we tell them, memorize them. I want you to play games with all the math facts. I want you to memorize these. As the kids are waiting for numbers to pop in their brain when you ask them the questions, so they, they don't know what it is. If they don't know what the answer is, that nothing pops in their head, what do they do? They count on their fingers, which is their comfort level, to find out what the sum is. And then when you think about a double-digit addition problem, where we have raised to put the algorithm in front of the kids so soon in their journey, they're usually grade one, I find a lot. Well, within the algorithm, it's just single-digit basic facts. And in each of those basic facts, they're counting on their fingers. <laughs> so they're in a counting phase of reasoning within the context of addition problem. I love this work of Pam Harris on the development of mathematical reasoning, that that image of her graphic that she has to go from the counting phase into additive thinking, and then by grade three into multiplicative reasoning, before the proportional and then the functional, the whole K-12 journey. So when I try to think about the math the kids are doing, what phase of reasoning is it? And the algorithms, adding and subtracting, are usually kids are counting. They're counting on their fingers. So how can we get that? Well, we can work on the flexibility of thought. The idea that I could ask kids, what's eight plus five? And that the kids could break apart that five and give two to the eight to make a 10. And that I can rename eight plus five as 10 plus three. That's a lot easier for my brain. So the heart of that addition of breaking apart numbers and putting them back together in flexible ways will be the key because I can then forward that to 48 plus 5 or 98 plus 5 or 98 plus 25. I can take two from it to make a 100. So 100 plus 23. It progresses all the way through their journey, including to fractions, adding four-fifths and three-fifths. Rather than adding numerators, keep denominators the same. Uh-oh, it feels weird. There's like a larger number on top, right? Break apart the three-fifths and give one-fifth to the four-fifths and rename it as a whole plus two-fifths. Like, it just will affect everything down their journey, starting with the basic facts. So the math running record allows us, when we're interviewing our kids, to be aware of that learning journey, because there are codes for that. This is all based on Carpenter and Moser's research, Baruti's research of the developmental trajectories, that the kiddos 
We ask them sets of facts as a benchmark expression for each of the set of facts. So you find which set of facts are causing a super slowdown, inaccuracies, or inefficient strategies like just counting on. And then within that zone, where are they on that trajectory of the having no strategy to even try it, the counting all, the counting on, the head counting, the derived strategies, and the automaticity? Because we can't take kids from counting all to automaticity in one step. That's not how kids learn and develop. So it's a protocol that allows us to learn about the expertise needed for early numeracy. It's a brilliant protocol, and it's been a lot of my consulting work because Dr. Nikki is just brilliant and she's so prolific and she just talks about all different areas of mathematics. But I've latched on to this math running record of the fluency piece because I really feel it's my gateway to get people to understand, teachers and the parents to understand the foundations of the operations and to build fluency through flexibility. And it alters everything because it applies to every other content that you're doing. I love how you reference even how we kind of jump the gun on the memorization of those derived facts, right? They're not really memorizing derived facts or memorizing facts. When we skip all of these parts and composing and decomposing number is so important. And I'm hearing that in what you're saying here. And this idea of equivalence sort of pops out. And as you're working with young kids and my son, who's an SK and my daughter, who's in grade two, I get to have fun with these things by playing with numbers and using strategies and seeing the strategies that they're using. And it really is pretty magical when you see them thinking. And I just had this, I guess, a bit of a sad moment there reflecting, as you had mentioned, like a student who's sitting there trying to bring up a fact that they've tried to memorize, but now it's like they're recalling facts. They haven't derived themselves, so they don't have a connection. They also don't have like a path to help them get out of a jam. And we talk about that a lot on this podcast. And it continues to cause more and more problems down the road because if students don't have a understanding of how they got to where they are, which I think many of us are like as adults, many of us are like that, right? Like those adults like John, you had mentioned that friend who was thinking of the algorithm, like I can multiply two digit by two digit numbers, no problem. But could they do it any other way? Or if they forgot one step of that algorithm, how are they going to get themselves out of that jam? And this is happening to so many young children because I think for so long, we've sort of made them take that leap. And the students who had the memory, the ability to memorize a little more easily or fluently than some other students, they were rewarded in the schooling system, but not necessarily rewarded with any sort of extra reasoning skills in mathematics. They just got the big gold star. And that was about it. John always references his puffy stickers that he used to get as a child. So I love that you're referencing this trajectory. And when this episode comes out, it'll be a few weeks after we had Doug Clements on oh and my his goodness. work. Yeah. How fantastic. Clements and Sonorama. I mean, they're just like the king and queen of early numeracy. <laughs> exactly. She was stuck out of town and we wanted to have both on the show. Oh my I'm goodness. telling you right now, hearing you and your passion about this trajectory, it's so, so critical. And and again, I know Nikki Newton thinks so highly as well of Doug Clements and uh, Julie Sarama. And Absolutely. It really all does come back full circle. So whether you're sitting at home right now and you're thinking to yourself, maybe this episode isn't for me. I'm a middle school teacher or I'm a high school teacher. I hope that people are seeing the connections. And you brought up Pam Harris and the development of mathematical reasoning that 
way down the road in high school, some of our students that are struggling the most, their struggles began way down here in this area where we didn't help them make those connections and really start to use reasoning to get themselves through number fluency. And that's really hindered them. And it makes me think, what do we do? Like, do you have any thoughts if someone's sitting there thinking and maybe they have a vision of a specific student in their class and they're like, oh, this student is really struggling. Like what might be a get started tip for someone who maybe this is a new idea for them? What are you going to say to them? Where might they begin? Might it be PD of some type or might it be just a website to get them going? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I typically go right back to the math running record, honestly, because it's going to help you understand where each child is on their journey so you can develop an instructional response derived for the kid. And then to get a sense of where all of your kiddos are. Because typically what I find, I'm training districts to implement this and then to do the next steps of how we explore fluency with our kids in concrete and pictorial and abstract ways. That's what our book is about. Dr. Nikki, Dr. Allison Mello and I collaborated on a book about fluency doesn't just happen with addition and subtraction. So the idea that what now I know where I need to begin working with each kid, what can I do then to explore these concretely pictorial and abstract and develop this kind of fluency program for my kiddos. So the math running record, I have a math running record Facebook group that I began close to three years ago now because Dr. Nikki She's doing so much all the time. I said, you know, do you mind if I make a group of a support group for those of us that are really going in depth of implementing these? She's like, oh, go right ahead. So there are videos in there of she and I talking for an hour about running records. And I have a whole padlet of resources for the group that has all kinds of information of great resources on fluency as well. So it's a wealth of knowledge in one place that you can learn all about this. And I'm always right there. A lot of my time is online providing advice to people within Facebook because it's a great platform to be able to share things like that. And so a lot of my life is being in there and providing advice and guiding people along to be beginning a book study starting next Monday, but I know this will not be out in time for that. But all the information of the book study is going to be within the Facebook group. So no matter when anyone joins the group, it'll be there for you. So you can see the posting and the questions and the comments and all. Because until we understand that trajectory of learning and then you can't really be looking for that, right? We've got to know, oh, that child is counting on. They're counting all. Now, well, I want to make sure I'm clear about a drive strategy. So for example, one really important fact for me is when I get to the progression, the beginning of the progression is like to add zero and add one to numbers and then counting on within five and then within 10. But then when you get to your teen numbers, you have the doubles and then doubles plus one. So when I ask kids five plus six, most kids tell me that they know it's an 11 because five and five is 10 and one more is an 11. So that's a derived fact. They're using a fact that they know to figure out one that they don't know. But the very next question in part two gives them more problems in that zone. The very next question is six plus seven. And that's where I can tell the kids who have begun using strategies and breaking apart numbers in flexible ways versus the counting on because the kids will count on six from the seven. So the very same student that tells me five and five is 10, one more makes an 11. So they know five plus six makes an 11 will count on their fingers six higher than the seven. So I can tell that there's no strategy thought there. So for that kiddo, I'd want them to go on to explore what doubles plus one is. And I would show them like a wreck and wreck. So a wreck and wreck is a tool that one version of the tool, you can have two rows of 10 and the beads are color coded at each five. So I can slide six beads over and seven down in the bottom row. So kids can see that amount of the 13 and I'll ask them, what do you see? How do you know? And some kids will count all the beads. So I know they're in a counting all phase. Some count on the six from the sevens. They're in counting on. But other kids will say, well, I'm seeing 
five and five red, and that's 10. And then I see one white and two white, that's three. So I see 10 plus three, which is a 13. But other kids say, well, I see six and six is 12, and one more makes 13. Other kids say, I see seven and seven is 14. I take away one, it's 13. And still other kids say, take three from the six and make a 10 with a seven. So it's 10 plus three. So I'm aware of all these different look-fors to then develop my own instructional response with them. Because a kiddo that tells me that six plus seven is 13 because they could break apart that six to be a 10 and a three, they go to the end, they do all their math facts and do whatever strategies they want with any of the addition math facts. But the kiddos that are counting on their fingers at that point, they go to just having visuals to see the quantities and describe what flexible ways can we get to that total and make it easier for our brain. So that's where I find it's a great place to begin the journey. Right. And forgive me, I'm not an elementary school teacher. I haven't had experience working, other than with my own kids, talking about numeracy at that level. I'm wondering, like, if I'm a teacher who wants to have that interaction, that lesson with my students, and what do I do beforehand? Like, how do I prepare for that? We often talk about that preparation is so important. Another quote that we've used from Tom Shimmer is that you want to plan with precision so that you can proceed with great flexibility and that preparation, we can't underestimate that. So I'm wondering, like, what does a teacher do to help prepare so that when they get in a conversation like that, they know to look for those strategies and they know, like, if I have that strategy, I'm going to push them this way. Like, what would you suggest a teacher can do to help get ready for something like that? Well, I think it's a matter of us building our own knowledge about that. Dr. Nikki has a class, an online class on her site. I've also, on my Padlet, have created videos for each of the strategies and how we can explore them with math tools. And there's no cost to any of this. The protocols to interview the kids are free. There's no cost to the running records. But really, it's a matter of us learning what we're looking for, (laughs) right? And so how do we do that? Well, her math running record book describes all the four operations and the thought behind each of the operations and the strategies. And then our book we've written so far, The Addition Subtraction, we are currently working on multiplication and division book to go along with it. But that's a matter of learning about it, the matter of just building our own, I mean, Christina Tondeville, building our math minds so we can then build the math minds of the kids, right? Because if you don't know what you're looking for, like I ask people all the time when kids are counting, if you put eight objects in front of a student and ask them to count, what are you looking for? And very basically, I always hear about one-to-one correspondence and saying the numbers in the correct order. And that's pretty much it. Well, Clemens and Sarama has 20 levels of counting, right? So their site, learningtrajectories.org, I send all my participants to that site because it is the most wealth of information about from birth to grade three of early numeracy and mathematics. Like, but until you know there are 20 things you could be looking for with counting, <laughs> you're going to look for one-to-one correspondence and if they say it in the right order, right? So it's, it's a journey. I know. And I love that response because I think that's where the content knowledge piece is so important. And I think in mathematics, I mean, in education in general, oftentimes teachers, we have this drive to find new pedagogical moves. And while they are important and they are a huge part of how you're going to organize and run your lessons, the content knowledge is key because if you don't have that, 
then it doesn't matter how hard you try to prepare, you're underprepared because that look for is not there. Being able to notice and name and then being able to essentially, once you've noticed and named what a student has done, to know what comes next. And John and I are constantly talking about that with our igniting the next moves piece of the framework, which is this idea of really understanding that trajectory of math learning that students travel down. And that's something that we continue to try to do. And clearly, you are also an advocate for that, continuing to try to grow your own math mind as well. And we're just thrilled that we've got some great ideas and some great links to share. We're going to definitely get that Facebook group up there in the resource page. We'll throw in learningtrajectories.org, which is a great resource. And we'll also grab some of those running records links as well as to the book. So I'm wondering before we wrap up, though, is there anywhere that the Math Moment Makers can learn more about you specifically and your work, some of which that you've already mentioned here, but where can they find more about you and get connected? Sure. I have a webpage, AnnaliseRecord.com. You can check that out and check out all the different offerings and things that I have for you there. And honestly, I have found that connection in the Facebook community because I was living in northern New Hampshire for over 20 years, and I found this amazing collection of people online. So they're just brilliant and generous and kind. And so I began in Twitter a little bit and then in Facebook, kind of creating communities of people willing to learn. So I run a Facebook group of my own called Elementary Math with Annalise, and that's any math topic K-5 is on the table, anything you want to talk about to give advice and all. And then I facilitate the Math Running Records one. We have over 13,000 people in there right now. And so that group is focused on fluency. So that's the fluency piece. So the elementary math with Annalise is that anything like fractions or you know any other topic on mathematics, but the Math Running Records is that fluency one. So joining in those groups or following me on Facebook, I have a growth mindset tree as my picture because that's my math profile on Facebook. So I only share math things there. So if you follow me there on Facebook, you could continue learning about me. And I also have a newsletter that I do because I know and respect the fact that people may not want to be on Facebook or social media. So they can subscribe to my newsletter and I send it out about once every week or two with all the kind of links and great things that I come along. Awesome stuff. Thanks for sharing that. We'll make sure that all of that is in the show notes page for this particular episode. And Elise, we want to thank you for taking time out of your day to share your expertise with us and our listeners. And we hope you enjoy the rest of your day. And we really appreciate talking to you. And hopefully we can catch you at a face-to-face conference sometime in the future. Let's hope. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. It was awesome to finally welcome Annalise onto the show to chat with us about her amazing efforts in conceptualizing mathematics. Hopefully uh, this conversation has inspired you to dive into your next math class uh, using a problem-based approach. Right. So be sure to check out the Wooly Worm Race, uh, the Snack Time Unit, or any of the other problem-based units that are available for you to dive into right now over at makemathmoments.com forward slash tasks. Absolutely, Kyle. Get on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash tasks to run one of these awesome problem-based units in your class today. 
In order to ensure you don't miss out on new episodes, make sure that you smash that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. And uh, did you know that these episodes are also on our YouTube channel? And uh, you know what, John? We've been doing a lot of these YouTube lives lately. So be yeah, sure to subscribe ready. over on YouTube uh, because we got some pretty cool little tricks up our sleeve that we're hoping to do each and every week. Yeah, we got some new stuff coming. Also, if you're liking what you're hearing, please share the podcast with a colleague. Help us reach a wider audience by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and uh, tweet us over at Make Math Moments on Twitter or Instagram or on Facebook. Show notes and links to resources, including full transcripts that can be downloaded or read right from the web for this episode and all the other episodes can be found over at makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 113. Again, that's makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 113. Well, my friends, until next time, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And a big high five for you. If you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent and principal, getting teacher buy-in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind. And plans only go so far. You can make you know detailed plans and, and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable. But that can feel like it all falls flat if we can't engage our teachers in the work. Working with teachers who do not want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job. How do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training uh, and accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, math, the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training, get your planning workbook, um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook. After completing that workbook, you're going to have a clear, measurable vision, action plan for mathematics to get more teacher buy-in, but also be able to hit your goals for the 2024-2025 school year. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash four stages to start this free training.